Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the software solution that could shake agencies and industry. Bridging the valley of death for the defense industrial base. And a new leader at DIU doesn't mean a mission shift. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The National Institutes of Health will get a new tech leader for the first time in more than 12 years. Andrea Norris will retire from federal service December 31st. She started as chief information officer at NIH in October of 2011. Acquisition professionals that buy artificial intelligence solutions for government agencies would have to get training on how AI works under a bill on President Biden's desk. The Office of Management and Budget and the General Services Administration would oversee the curriculum for AI program managers, research and development employees, procurement and contracting officials, and logistics and cost estimation personnel. The bill requires OMB and GSA to update the training every two years. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and registration in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agencies would have to consolidate software licenses and share more information about software purchases under a bill that's advancing through the Senate. If it becomes law, it could mean big changes for vendors, too. Angela Stiles is a partner at Aiken Gump. She's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Angela, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. My colleague, Nahal Krishan, writes, major federal government software and cloud service providers like Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, Google, Oracle, and Adobe are expected to be affected significantly by the legislation. What impact would it have on them, and what impact would it have on contracting shops across the government if this bill becomes law? Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I think it's a great idea. It's one that I actually had back in 2002 when I was administrator for federal procurement policy. I actually went to a big um, software company and said, you know, we should just come up with an arrangement for the entirety of the federal government, right? A, a price for the license for what you do um, and make sure that we're accounting for it properly. So uh, the fact that the federal government still hasn't done it is kind of shocking to me. I mean, I know they haven't. I haven't seen it. Um, But it makes lots of sense, right? The federal government has incredible buying power, and it's incredible buying power that they don't use very often. And so to actually stop and step back and say, yeah, you know, the federal government should use its buying power to actually make sure they're properly tracking software licenses and, frankly, to get lower costs. I mean, it's not um, something that industry wants to hear. Um, I certainly think that, you know, industry benefits from the kind of compartmentalized um, balkanization, if you will, of federal procurement. But um, it it is certainly a way to use the federal government's buying power, hard to implement, but um, a good idea from many perspectives. Well, that's the, the hard to implement part is the part that I'm wondering about, too, because it's one thing for Congress to pass a law and say you need to do this. It's another thing for somebody to actually take it down two or three levels inside a contracting shop in an agency and get it to actually happen, isn't it? Right. And a lot of them are, frankly, being sold through resellers. And so many, many of these licenses are being sold through small business resellers. And, you know, you can't do it without assessing the impact on the resellers and the small businesses that are doing it, because many of 
um, the federal goals with terms to with regards to federal dollars being spent with small businesses are being met through these resellers that are um, you know packaging them with other things, selling them with additional services. So it's not as easy as you or I having you know a license on our home laptop and renewing that every year. These are embedded in things. They're embedded in the resellers, and there's a lot of small businesses that would be impacted that really have to be taken into consideration too. How do you do that assessment that you alluded to a moment ago, Angela? <laughs> it's pretty hard to do, in part because it's not as though federal agencies are going to these large companies and just buying from them. And so figuring out where they're embedded in, you know, large IT systems into the laptops they're already purchasing into, frankly, you know, bombs and missiles and aircraft carriers, I don't know how you actually go and parse through those licenses without significant assistance from the company and that companies. And maybe that's where the trade-off is, right? You know, help us figure this out. And, you know, we'll make sure that you're properly compensated for helping us figure this out. So the, the, the what you're describing there sounds to me like there are two important and valid, valuable goals that the federal government has that could potentially be directly at odds with each other as a result of this. One is to get the very best price on uh, a product or service that you possibly can to make the impact of the taxpayer as low as you can. And the other is to use that buying power, as you say, to spread out the government buying among the small business community and sustain the industrial base as broadly as you possibly can. That doesn't necessarily mean if you're doing that, that you're paying the lowest price that you can. And so that's, exa that's exactly right. And so, I mean, it's, it's so much more complicated than it looks on the surface, which is what I learned even, you know, 20 years ago is that great idea. Um, what's the best way to implement it? And maybe it's some kind of partnership with, with industry to say, you know, we realize that there's other goals here, right? We realize that there's more than just us buying a license from you, big company. There's a lot more involved here. The cynic in me then says, well, it's not necessarily to the benefit of the company. You talked about balkanization a few minutes ago, and I think that's a, an apt term because, uh, a, a cynic would say it's to the benefit of the vendor to sell 100 here and 200 here and 500 here instead of selling 800 or 8,000 or 8 million across the scope of the federal government. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I would probably say, yes, that it, it may be to the benefit of the vendor to be operating this way. It may simply be that the vendors have operated the way the federal government has asked them to. All right. So that then means that there's potential not just for the remedies that this bill would provide if it becomes law, but if you're going to open Pandora's box, then you might as well root around a little bit and maybe rethink the way the government buys this software altogether. Is, that, is this an opportunity potentially to do that, Angela, and change some other things that may or may not be beneficial to the agencies and to the taxpayer? I think so. So instead of mandating something from Congress, it says you agencies shall do something that may be virtually impossible to do to say, why don't we get both communities together? Let's get the private sector and the public sector together here to see if there's a better solution for all of us, not just 
you know, coming up with a list of licenses, which is really hard to do and is going to take a lot of money. And then what? Right. Um, versus let's work together. Let's see. You know, let's see how we can make this more efficient for the taxpayer and work for the companies that are um, have invested for the long term in this. So that fits together with another one of the stories that I flagged for you. General Services Administration has a new uh, cohort of 28 people that are working as kind of a policy advisory board for them. Some of them are in government. A lot of them are former government people. One of your successors, Ann Rung, is uh, on this committee. And it strikes me that's the kind of place, maybe not that exact committee because their mission may be different, but that type of structure, that type of organization with that kind of person on it might be the kind of organization to address exactly the kind of issue that you're talking about. That's right. And I think if you look at the role Congress can play, it's to say, do it, mandate it, give deadlines. You know, that's what Congress is really good about. Instead of telling agencies and and the private sector how it's like you all get together and by this time, tell me how to fix this. All right. I mentioned earlier, I'm a little bit cynical. And when you said you had this idea in 2002, I was cynical then. But as you've explained the complexity of it to me, it's easy to under easier, I guess to understand why it's taken so long to get to this point. Right. And it's working right now. I mean, at the end of the day, look, the the government's getting what they need. Um, And, you know, the system is functional in terms of us serving the taxpayer. And, you know, the the contracts are going to take into consideration a lot more than just the license fee. It's going to be like, well, you know, what are all the laptops that we're buying that have the license fee inside of it? And those are working. Angela Stiles, terrific conversation and great insight as always. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can read more about the software bill in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Tuesday's show, IT security inside the Department of Homeland Security. Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at Citizenship and Immigration Services, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. You can find that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The deputy director of DIU will serve as acting director for now. Mike Brown's tenure as DIU director ended early in September. Mike Madsen is the deputy director and acting director of the Defense Innovation Unit. At Defense Talks, he tells Defense Group's Brandy Vincent how he's thinking about events around the world and how they influence DIU's mission. We're designed to lower barriers to entry to the defense marketplace and get uh, leading-edge commercial technology into the hands of the men and women in uniform. Um, And so as we look out at uh, Ukraine, it's pretty clear that domains of competition are shifting. They're no longer strictly military. We're looking at uh, uh, economic domains, social domains, informational domains. So if you follow that premise, then dual-use technology is going to be increasingly uh, important uh, going forward in how uh, we use that. And we could look at Starlink. Uh, Starlink is a communication tool. Uh, Ukraine was uh, able to effectively use that uh, commercial capability. Uh, Ukrainian drones are using Starlink to drop uh, kinetic weapons on Russian forward positions. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Ukrainians in uh, besieged eastern cities are able to use that to communicate with loved ones. Uh, So it's that that dual use uh, that we're seeing there. And so what that, that gives is a continuity of ops perspective for the Ukrainians, as well as a, a asymmetric uh, element to that. Uh, and as we look at prototyping technology, which is uh, what DIU does, 
what better place to prototype technology for combat ops than in combat operations? So we continue to watch uh, that unfold with the technologies we're looking at uh, and, and learning the lessons we can there. Absolutely, and you bring up a good point about um, sort of that citizen journalism, and like for Ukraine, the technology impacting not just people on the ground fighting, but also the citizens there. Um, some of the startups that you guys work with were actually, it sounded like, just ready to deploy because of that relationship that they had with DIU. Um, what are some of the learnings and takeaways you're gathering in this conflict, and what do you think it says about um, DIU's mission and impact? Well, I think our impact is only going to increase. We've shown value to both of our uh, stakeholders, the supply and demand side, the DOD partner as well as the commercial uh, partner. But we've learned several lessons. And probably one of the most important ones is the democratization of technology. It's now out there, it's widely available. So uh, we need to decide what technology is important to the department and figure out how we can leverage that and bring that in and also protect it. Make sure there's no adversarial capital that, that gets into the, the early stage of that and makes the intellectual property unavailable uh, for DOD. Uh, the second one is uh, classification. Uh, now this is a little counterintuitive because you'd think we'd want to classify things, but in fact, in the early days of the Ukrainian hostilities, leveraging commercial technology that was unclassified in the public domain allowed us to show to the world what was really happening and to counter adversarial narratives uh, that were spreading some, uh, some false information. Um, the third one is uh, speed of delivery, uh, speed of relevance really and we're able to get that commercial technology very rapidly uh, to the folks that need it. Uh, but also you can think of it from a perspective of leveraging commercial cycles, not just technology, but the actual cycles. Mm -hmm. So we can get the refresh and become less concerned with sustainment and in fact just um, treat it as an attributable technology and get the next generation when that one uh, comes out. Uh, the next uh, thing that we've learned is hedging. Uh, hedging our bets. We have exquisite platforms and we can start leveraging uh, commercial technology that's small, that's smart, that's many, to make up for some inherent vulnerabilities in exquisite uh, platforms. And the last uh, real lesson that we've learned is a uh, training aspect of this. Um, we don't want to put this in the hands of the men and women in uniform for the first time when they're entering combat operations, but rather uh, start to integrate it into the con-ops uh, and their training so they can be very, very comfortable with it uh, going forward. Absolutely. Like they said in the past panel, it's like stress tests and learning for the future. Um, I want to pivot for a second and just broadly speak about the unit that you're leading, um, not just from Ukraine, but what are you focusing on during these next few months um, as they're naming a permanent director and you're filling in an enacting capacity? What are your priorities? Well, it's a very exciting time at DIU. I've always been uh, very, very bullish on DIU. I kind of joke that it's the second most fun I've had in my professional life because it's hard to compete with flying airplanes around the world, but uh, it is a lot of fun to interact with uh, a lot of great folks. Uh, so I'm taking an approach not as a caretaker, um, but we're gonna remain steadfast in our mission to get technology uh, into the hands of the men and women in uniform that are on the front end. Uh, but what we're also going to do is to continue uh, some of the initiatives that Mike Brown started before he left. Uh, one of them is what he called a fast follower strategy. So we're gonna continue advancing that, and that is finding those areas where the commercial sector is leading and leverage that and be a fast follower and partner very closely with them uh, and, and remain a first adopter for those things that are being advanced more quickly. What are some of those areas? Uh, as a fast follower? Mm -hmm. Well, what we found is 11 of the 13 modernization priorities, the critical tech areas uh, in R&E, 
are all being advanced much more quickly in the commercial tech sector. And in fact, DIU is uh, centered around six tech focus areas, AI, ML, autonomy, human systems, commercial space, cybersecurity, and energy, one of our newest portfolios. And we think those are the areas that are undergoing the greatest rate of change, also aligned with the defense mission set. God, and you mentioned um, energy being a new one. Is there a world where you guys are continuing to add to those technology areas um, that you're focusing on, or do you imagine just sticking with those? No, we will not remain static. We're going to respond to uh, the developments in the commercial world. In fact, we have an internal team, our commercial engagement team, solely focused on understanding where the investment is taking place, who the leading developers are, what technology is really uh, advancing, and they're focused on that. And in fact, uh, I mentioned our energy portfolio is the newest portfolio, uh, but before that we had an IT portfolio that we evolved to a cyber portfolio in response to the uh, emerging investments in the emerging technology in the commercial sector. So it evolves based on sort of the needs and, and all that you see. Um, right. I see that we're going fast on time. From your perspective as a former combat pilot, what are sort of um, your takeaways or what you're feeling about the use of commercial tech in conflict now? Well, I think it's important to understand that um, DIU, we prototype rapidly. Um, we want to influence more procurement dollars. We're a tool in the toolbox for folks to use. I'll relate a quick story. Um, when I was flying back in 2000, 2001, uh, the C-17, the world's most advanced airlifter, everything was computer controlled. Engines, fuel system, glass cockpit. And there was a condition that was so common, there was a name for it. It was called an exceptional restart. So you'd be flying along over the North Atlantic, Central Asia, South Pacific, and everything would go black and revert to backup uh, in the middle of the night, perhaps, uh, while the system rebooted itself. So why was this? Because in 2001, the most advanced airlifter in the world was using chip technology from the 80s because of the, the procurement system. Of course, that's, that's changed now. There are ways to, from a modular perspective, to upgrade uh, things. So I think by leveraging the commercial technology uh, and the cycles uh, and the methodologies, uh, that is the biggest takeaway for the, the warfighter to, to really embrace that modular open system uh, architecture. Absolutely, and you have such an interesting perspective being both like in a cockpit, an aviator, and influencing on the hill around acquisition. Um, what do you think is more challenging, the technology or the bureaucracy? Oh, I, I think we've heard it. We've heard it from uh, Josh. We've heard it from uh, Colton before. By the way, Colton, I want to talk to you. We can help with that uh, risk mitigation piece. <laughs> Always selling. Uh, but Josh is right. It's, uh, it's culture uh, that we have to get uh, leadership and it's risk mitigation and approaching risk not as a, a, a stoppage, but rather uh, embracing that uh, as a way, finding new ways to do things and understand that that's actually going to mitigate the risk. Absolutely. Last question. I know DIU um, just made its seven-year happy anniversary. What would you like its legacy to be? Well, to continue uh, to continue to make impact. Uh, we brought about 100 new vendors into the defense marketplace. We brought about 300 non-traditional vendors into the defense marketplace. And these were our vendors who previously evaluated uh, that $800 billion marketplace and said, we don't want any part of that because you're too challenging, too complex. Mm -hmm. So we've been able to bring them in. We've been able to award very large uh, contracts, production contracts to our commercial partners to truly grow that national security uh, innovation base to continue to support uh, the next generation of warfighters with the next generation of technology. Mike Madsen of the Defense Innovation Unit with Defense Group's Brandy Vincent. You can find a link to the video for that session and all the Defense Talk sessions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.